Brilliant, thank you, Mike. Um, our daughter, Eva, she has, uh, a, I think it's called a Jesus storybook. So it's like Bible stories, stories of things that Jesus did, places he went. Uh, but it has pictures in it, very few words, lots of pictures, as most children's books are. And Steph was telling me the other week how uh, one morning they were, I think it was over breakfast, they were looking at one of these stories. And the picture that accompanied it, uh, there were some jars in it, and in a couple of the jars you could see that there was water in them, and then in the other jars there was, uh, the contents were red. Uh, and at which point Eva had decided that the, the jars containing the red stuff uh, it was dip dip, or as she calls it, it's ketchup. So she decided that there were these jars of ketchup. <laughs> the story that, that Steph and Eva were going through together was the story of Jesus at the wedding in Cana, where he turned the water into wine. But as far as Eva is concerned, Jesus now turned all the water into ketchup. Um, and the reason I'm saying this is because this morning, this is uh, the story, if you like, the scriptures that we're going to be looking at uh, together is from when Jesus was at the wedding at Cana, when he turned the water into wine. If you've got your Bibles with you, if you can turn to John in chapter 2, that's where we're going to be heading together and spending our time this morning. I'm fairly confident that whatever translation you have, it will involve Jesus turning water into wine, and not ketchup. If I'm wrong, uh, then please come and see me at the end. We need to get you a different Bible. This, we're now into the second uh, week of our new series that we've called Conversations with Jesus. I think it's a 10-week series and over those 10 weeks we're going to be looking at conversations and encounters that Jesus sorry that Jesus had as he explains himself and as he explains his purposes what we also see is with the, the people that Jesus was talking to and the people that Jesus was encountering we get to see how their lives were changed as, as a result very often their lives and their lifestyles were challenged uh, but they were also changed. So that's what, what we want to spend our time looking at. Now, last week, Mike started off the series. He kicked it off looking at when Jesus called the first disciples. And that's what we spent our time looking at last week. If you weren't here, that's now been uh, uploaded and it's now online if you wanted to catch up. Yeah. Sorry, I had to do it. Blame Eva. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome to the party, Tina. Uh, and then, as I say, this week, what we're going to be doing is uh, we're going to be uh, looking at Jesus at the wedding in Cana. If you're making notes, uh, my title for, for the sermon is Jesus, the Wedding Guest. So I'm going to start from the beginning of John chapter 2. We're going to read through up until verse 12. So read along. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This 
The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. After this he went down to, to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Before we kind of get too far into things this morning, there's a couple of things really that we need to understand just um, in terms of the context and what's going on, the situation that Jesus finds himself in. That will just help us in terms of understanding what this miracle was about and what Jesus was saying about himself. The first thing is that we need to understand something of Jewish weddings. For husband and wife, it, it meant coming of age. It meant becoming full members of society. But whereas I think now for us, Weddings are obviously very focused on the individuals. You know, we talk about it being a couple's big day. It's about them. It's a chance to celebrate them and, and, and to join with them. Actually, in understanding Jewish weddings, it was much more about the community as a whole than perhaps we would understand weddings today. Marriage was primarily about binding community together. It was about the next generation being raised up. And because of this, because there was much more of this community focus, it was about actually strengthening community, binding community together. And because of this, weddings really involved the whole community. It wasn't just about select friends and family. It was a big community event. They were large, lavish events that could last a week or more. Okay? It, to prepare a wedding for a day took a lot. <laughs> to think what it must have taken for, for a celebration that would have lasted a week or more. It was the responsibility of the groom to provide everything that was necessary for an occasion of such great importance. Really, the weight of it fell on him as the provider. It was a way of him showing that he could provide for his family. So to run out of wine would have been uh, a social embarrassment. That's probably an understatement. It would have been a very shameful thing. Some commentators even saying that it would... That if on situations where wine ran out, uh, lawsuits were taken up, it was a big, it was a big, big deal. Um, but th- really, this is the situation in terms of the wine running out. This is the situation that occurs at the wedding where Jesus, his mother, and his disciples were at. So it was a big community event together. So, just a little bit of background. Hopefully, will help us as we continue this morning. The second thing is this: is that the miracle that we've just read about. This is Jesus' first miracle. It's his first public miracle. It's right at the very outset of his, of his ministry. There's a potential that we could look at it, and it could be seen as a bit of a, a luxury miracle. When you compare it to some of the other miracles that Jesus did, when we look at how he had compassion on people, how he healed people, how he raised people from the dead, and then you look at turning water into wine to provide wine for a wedding, we can look at it and think, where does that fit? Is it a bit of a, bit of a luxury miracle there? Kind of where does it stand up against the other miracles that Jesus, uh, that Jesus did? What it isn't, it, what I'm convinced of is it's not that Jesus has kind of got his, his miracle stabilizers on. This is his first miracle. I'm going to try something out on a smaller scale. Let's see how this goes. If it goes well, then I can move on to bigger and better things. We don't want to look at it like that. We don't want to diminish what he actually does here. You see, John, throughout his gospel, where other writers might use the word miracle, John uses the word sign. And he does this quite deliberately. If you read through his gospel, whenever there are miracles, he talks about there being signs. We understand why in John 20, 30 to 31, 
where John explains the purpose of his book, the reason why he's writing. He says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing him, you may have life in his name. That's why he uses the word signs, because they're, they're pointers, they're things that point us in the direction of Jesus. You see, this miracle of Jesus that we're looking at this morning, it's not merely a kind act and nothing more. It's not that he's just looking to help some people out and to get them out of a sticky situation. What it is, it's, it's a sign that speaks of who he is and of what he came to do. Unfortunately, there's no discourse that goes along, so there's no written or spoken explanation, which would be really helpful in a situation like this. Again, if you look at other uh, examples of um, situations through the Gospels, uh, through John, where, where Jesus performs a miracle, oftentimes Jesus will then explain what's, what's going on, the reason behind it, so you kind of the, the, if it's, um, what, what it's meant to be conveying. But we don't have it in this situation. Jesus doesn't explain what he's done, and he doesn't explain why he's done it. But this morning, we're going to unpack these verses to see what they reveal to Jesus, because actually I think there are things in it which help us to understand what Jesus was trying to get across and actually why this is such a significant miracle and not just a luxury miracle as some might happen to believe. So just a reminder again, our series title is Conversations with Jesus. So let's start with the conversation that Jesus has with his mother in these verses. As she re- she's the one that realises that the wine has run out. So going back to verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Mary's become aware of this situation. The wine's run out. She's aware of what that would mean for the couple. Essentially, it would mean that the party's over. If the wine's not there, the party's done. And the impact that that would have had on the bride and on the groom. So she brings the situation to Jesus. It's as if she, she's bringing it, there's an expectation, I think, on her part, I'm going to bring it to Jesus and, and leave it with him. Now, Jesus' response perhaps takes us a little bit by surprise. It's quite short, it's quite abrupt. Uh, it may even appear that he's actually being quite rude in the way that, he's, in the way that he addresses his mum, in the way that he, that he talks to her. I'm pretty sure if my mum asked me a question and, and my first response was with woman, it would, raise a, it would raise a few eyebrows because that's just not the way that we, we tend to do things. But when we look at the context of the word and what it actually means, we see it, it's a polite term. It's a, it's a respectful term that Jesus uses. In that sense, it, it's not rude in any way. It wouldn't have been considered rude. But there is a distance there. It's not particularly affectionate. It's not familial. It's not really how you would expect a, a son talking to his mother, even though it's respectful. And then Jesus continues. And he goes on to speak of how his, his hour has not yet come. And Jesus speaking about his hour coming, again, is a common theme throughout the book of John. There are several occasions where it comes through. And each and every time when we see this, it's Jesus. When Jesus is speaking of, of his hour, of his hour coming, he's always speaking about his death. He's always speaking about his crucifixion. It's like everything, his, everything is building up to his hour. It's leading up to this point of his death and of his crucifixion. Remember, this miracle 
This conversation that's taken place is right at the very, very early stages of Jesus' ministry. But already he's got his, he's got his mind focused on what, he, what he's got to do and what he's come to achieve. So already at this early stage of his ministry, this very early stage of his ministry, Jesus is thinking ahead to his death and his resurrection. It's informing and shaping his thinking. It's shaping his behavior. It's shaping his actions. You see, Jesus, he sees beyond the immediate picture. He sees beyond the immediate situation that he finds himself in. Yes, he's at a wedding. Yes, this situation has presented itself where they've run out of wine. His mother's brought it to him and said, effectively, I think she's saying, look, they've run out of wine. What can we do? And already Jesus is seeing beyond that to the much bigger picture. He's saying, look, my hour's not yet come. I'm already thinking about what I've come to do. And I think this is where, if we think that Jesus is kind of, the way he's talking to his mother, there's a bit of a distance there. I think it's because as Jesus is conversing with Mary, he's doing so not just as her son, but also as the Messiah. He's thinking about what he's come to do, not just for her, but for all people. Mary knows who Jesus is. If we go back into the Gospels and think about um, when Mary was told about who her son was going to be and the wonderful things and the amazing things that he was going to do. So she knew who he was. And then she goes and tells the servant, she says, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. She knows who he is. She's saying, whatever he tells you to do, you've got to listen to him and you've got to do it. I think this, this, conversation that, this conversation provides us really with the lens with which we need to understand what happens next. In the sense that Jesus was using the lens of always looking towards his hour coming. I think we need to read the rest of what, what happens next with the same lens. With the sense that Jesus was looking to his hour coming. To his death and to his resurrection. I mentioned earlier about there being no discourse, no explanation. To be perfectly honest... It would be much more helpful for us if it was there, but it's not. On other occasions, we see in John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then just a, a little while later in that passage, we see how he, he explains how he's the bread of life. So we've got the miracle and then we've got the explanation of what it was meant to, to symbolize and, and express. John 11, Jesus speaks of being the resurrection and the life. <coughs> then he raises Lazarus from the dead. So can you see we've got the, the, the explanation but then we've also got the miracle going hand in hand. But again, we don't have that here. But we can still get a strong understanding of what is revealed. We were travelling back from prayer and equipping in the week. And we, um, we were on the Ashford Road pulling up to the T-junction where it joins with the A2. The kind of junction you don't want to be at at 5 o'clock or at 8 o'clock in the morning. That one. And um, if, if you've gone down that road, if you look opposite, there's that fairly newish block of flats that... That are there. And I've, I must have seen them hundreds of times. We've pulled out of that road hundreds of hundreds of times. And I've noticed before, if you've ever noticed the roofs, they're a really interesting shape. They're not like anything else really that I've seen. They're, they're across the main part of the roof, they're quite flat, and then they turn up at, at the end, almost like a, like a dish. And I've seen it hundreds of times, never really thought anything of it. But then when we were, it was on Thursday, we were traveling back, I looked beyond that building and I could see one of the, Steph tells me it's a Georgian building, and a big uh, Georgian building that would have been there for, what, hundreds, hundreds of years. And um, if you look, the roof on that building is the same shape. And I'd never noticed this before. And in that moment, I thought, 
I think I can see where the architect had got his inspiration for that from having a look at what had been there previously. What had been there previously had informed what was being built and what was new. And I'd never noticed that before. I could have looked at that building a hundred more times and unless I'd seen what had come before, I would have had no idea uh, what the inspiration or the thinking was behind it. It completely changed the way I look at the new buildings because I understood what had come before and I could see that. I'm going to come back to that in just a second as to why I've shared that. John tells us that the water jars that Jesus draws the water off from, this is so vital. He tells us that they were there for the purpose of the Jewish rites of purification. They were there for them to wash their hands, to wash their utensils. The purpose of it was to make them ceremonially clean. This provides us with the clue to interpret what Jesus does and why he uses this water in particular. You see, the water represents the old order of Jewish law and Jewish custom. The need for rituals and purification in order to be uh, presentable before God and being able to be considered holy before God. That's what that represented. You see, just coming back to the roofs of the flats, understanding what has come before, so in understanding what the, 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 the requirements of the Jewish people were, the, the, the need for the uh, purification and the, the cleansing, understanding that, just like the roofs of the flats, being, being able to see what has come before enables us to understand the new. It enables us to understand what Jesus was saying. It enables us to understand the significance of this miracle that Jesus performed. Tim Keller, he, I do enjoy reading Tim Keller. And he's written a book called Encounters with Jesus. And he says this, in term, uh, it, for us to understand the significance of Jesus using this water. He says that you know that Old Testament Judaism contained a great number of rites and regulations which required many and various courses of physical cleansing and purification, all in order to, to point to our spiritual need. The fact that spiritually we need cleansing, spiritually we need purifying. goes on to say that these vividly got across the idea that God is holy and perfect and we are flawed and that to connect to him at all there needs to be an atonement, a cleansing, a pardon. We cannot just walk right into his presence. So Jews had many purification rites leading all the way up to the blood sacrifices. That's what the jars that we're talking about here were normally used for. And here we should remember that the failure of the wine supply was more than a mere embarrassment. Imagine how deep the humiliation can be if you've let your family down in a shame and honour culture. We don't understand that dynamic very well today in the individualistic West, but these young people were facing certain public shame and guilt. Jesus Christ rescues them from all of that. And by employing the jars normally used for ceremonial washing, he is saying that he has come into the world to accomplish in reality what the ceremonial and sacrificial laws of the Old Testament pointed to. The fact that Jesus used those jars of water is of such utter significance and a very powerful statement of who he is and of what he had come to do. As Keller was saying, Jesus is saying he's going to be the one who's going to fulfill the requirements of the old, of what had been before, of the old requirements, of the old law. And in doing so, just like he did for this young married couple, 
He's going to cover our shame. This is what Jesus accomplished when his hour came. This is what we remembered a moment ago when we, when we share communion together. I'm pleased that the bread and the wine are still there because it's a helpful reminder. We can see the wine in that glass. And it's a reminder for us of what Jesus did. His death, his resurrection, taking our place, covering our shame to reconcile us back to God. To make us acceptable and presentable and holy before him. Now in the Hebrew Bible, wine represented joy. It was a sign of God's blessing. It was a sign of God's favour. So you can see why running out would be such a big deal. And I love the response of the master of the feast in these verses that we've just read. This new wine is brought out to him and it's better than anything that had been brought out already at this wedding. Better than anything that had come before it. The party's been going for quite some time and we're told that it's more usual for the best wine to come out first. Cheaper wine comes out a bit later. Maybe people are less likely to notice as the party goes on. I don't know, but that was the, the common practice. Best comes out first. And then the cheaper stuff comes out later. But what Jesus... Sorry. He calls, the, he calls the bridegroom to him. If Jesus hadn't acted, that bridegroom would have stood before the master of the feast in absolute shame and absolute embarrassment. But instead, he stands before the master of the feast. The master of the feast says to him, this is better than anything that we've had before. That is about as far from being shamed as you, as you would be able to get in that situation. What Jesus provides is better than what has come before. In that, it's not a last minute, anything will do provision. It's not a quick, get down the supermarket, supermarket and just get your hands on whatever we can. We just need to make sure people have a drink in their hands. It's not that. What Jesus provides is better than anything that had come before the master of the feast was responsible for making sure that the party was a good party. He was responsible for making sure that everything was in place for people to be able to celebrate, for people to have a good time. That's what their job was. Without Jesus, this wedding was over. This wedding was done. But he steps in. He saves it. And in doing so, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I'm the true master of the feast. I'm the one that brings joy. I'm the one that brings blessing. And it reminds us of a promise in the Old Testament in Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 verses 6 to 8. It says that on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of food, uh, rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach or the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. We've got this wonderful imagery of this feast that the Lord himself is hosting. Jesus, he quietly rescues a wedding. It's not a big showy thing. It's quiet and unassuming but he rescues this wedding. But his actions speak loudly about something far more significant about him. What he has provided is better. It is fuller. It is richer. It is more wonderful. It is more joyful than what had come previously. And we have these comparisons between the old covenant 
and what Jesus comes to provide with the new. The requirements of the old being fulfilled in him. In a way that is fuller, richer, more joyful than anything that had come before. There's coming an eternal feast. But we get a foretaste of that joy now. The disciples, they would have known the text of Isaiah. They would have known it. They would have known what had been written about this coming feast. They understood the need for ceremonial cleansing. So they knew what those jars of water were there for. They knew this. They understood it. They had seen the sign. They had seen the miracle. And they knew what Jesus was saying. John writes that um, it, it manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Because they could see exactly what he was saying about himself. They didn't, they didn't believe in him because he could turn water into wine in and of itself. It was much bigger than that. They knew what it signified. They knew what it pointed to. They knew what it meant. Effectively, they had tasted the new wine. So Jesus, the master of the feast. But in John chapter 3, so just in the next chapter from the one that we've been reading in, John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. It's a term that Jesus uses to refer to himself to, again in Matthew 9, 15. So Jesus is the master of the feast. He's the giver of joy. But he's also the bridegroom. You see, this feast, this eternal feast, isn't, it's not just a, an ordinary feast. This, this is a wedding feast. This is a wedding feast where the bride, the church, will be united permanently with Jesus. Yes, he's the master of the feast, but he's the groom himself. Come for his bride. Mike last week was talking about how we live in a, a day and age now where we can, if we wanted to, where we could um, binge on box sets of TV programs. And I'm afraid to say I've got Steph into a program called Suits and we're working our way fairly quickly, <laughs> fairly quickly through it at the moment. Uh, I think it's, it, we really enjoy it. It's um, about a law firm in New York. And, but there's something that keeps coming through and um, really a common thing. When people mess up, when people make mistakes, when people betray other people, uh, when people do stuff behind people's backs, when they're asking for forgiveness or when they're asking for their misdemeanors to be covered up, or ignored or when they're not actually being turned over to, to face the consequences as they should do it nearly always comes with the caveat that do you know what one day someone's going to call on them for a favour because they've helped them out I'll let you off on this one but effectively it's this mentality of you owe me one and it seems to be the way that that, that world in this particular program seems to work everyone's got a bit of dirt on someone else they're going to hide it because one day I'm going to come calling on you for a favour praise God this is not how Jesus sees us because that price that debt that Jesus paid for us the covering up of our wrongdoings the covering up of our misdemeanours not turning us over to face the consequences that we deserve. Not handing us over to the punishment that we deserve. That debt could never be repaid. There's not any favour that you think that you could give God that would ever come close to repaying the debt that he has given you. 
Jesus is not like those characters in that program. Of, do you know what, one day I'm going to come calling and you owe me one. And you better be ready. That is not his attitude towards us. That was not his attitude in going to the cross. In Hebrews 12 verse 2 it says that Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning it, uh, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. What sent Jesus to the cross? What enabled him to endure it? It was for the joy that was set before him. The joy for you, for me, for the church, his bride. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. We are his joy. Do you know that of yourself this morning? You are his joy. It was because of you that he endured the cross. Doesn't say for the inconvenience that was before him. Doesn't say for the nuisance. We're not simply a problem that needed to be solved. He didn't see a situation that he could exploit. He was not acting out of reluctance. But he was acting out of love, out of mercy, and out of grace. As a groom longing for his bride. That's how Jesus thinks of you, his church. Ephesians 5, 25-27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's how Jesus sees the church. He gave his life, gave himself up for the church, his bride. And Jesus, he comes and he washes us clean. Think back to those jars that he used, of the, the, the waters that were used for cleansing. Jesus washes us clean. It's Jesus who covers our shame. It's Jesus who makes us holy, who presents us in splendor, who brings us joy, who secures for us an eternity with him, a bride united with her groom. I, I love this story about Jesus because it, as it might appear fairly simple on the surface but man is it powerful at the very outset of Jesus' ministry he's saying this is who I am this is what I've come to do yes I'm the master of the feast but I'm the bridegroom as well and I'm giving everything because I'm longing for my bride and I'm going to do whatever it takes to cover her shame and present her as holy and blameless my title for this sermon was Jesus the wedding guest but the miracle at Cana points us to a day when Jesus will no longer be a guest. But he himself will be the master of the feast. He himself will be the giver of joy. Yet this feast, it's his feast. It's his wedding feast. As he is united with his bride, the very bride that he laid his life down for.